You know, there is no greater question that faces the Christian faith than the why of wickedness. This morning, even in our own community, there were children that woke up sore because of the beating they took yesterday. There, there are wives, even today, planning their escape on how they can get out from, the, from underneath them and their families from the oppression of an abusive husband. There are husbands that have been left holding the bag, wondering why it is they've been abandoned, wondering why it is that someone that they loved so dearly has betrayed them so obviously. If you go to a third world country, like a place like, like Swaziland, the orphanages are fuller than the churches. And from the orphanages, because of, of centuries-old uh, rituals, the orphans are taken and offered up as living sacrifices, offered up with hungry bellies before angry gods. Yeah. All of these are pointing to something. All of these are serving as reminders to us of the wickedness that is all around us. And in fact, not just all around us, but the wickedness that is inside of us. I think about something that, uh, that we have going on in our church. We see, what I want us to see this morning and what I think our text teaches us is that wickedness doesn't dismiss God. Instead, wickedness points to his wonder. And, and, and thinking about the wickedness in us and thinking about the wickedness around us and thinking about that in conjunction with the wonderful plan of God, I think about men like John Hall. See, back when John was a teenager, John was arrested, sentenced to the juvenile detention center. And you wouldn't have had a difficult time finding someone that would have told you that, that John was condemned to a life of deviance, to a life of powerlessness, to a life of wanting and doing and doing things that were dishonorable to the Lord. And yet today, today, John is a pastor in his church, an elder in our fellowship. And do you know where he goes twice a month? He goes and he preaches at the very detention center where he once served. See, there is wickedness around us, but that wickedness is subservient to the goodness of God. That wickedness is subservient to the redemption of God. That wickedness is subservient to the providence of God. That God takes the wickedness around us and God takes the wickedness that is in us and God uses it to, to paint a story of His glory. This morning we're going to see that crystal clear in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me. Go ahead and turn with me there. We're at an exciting place here at Iron City. We are coming in on the home stretch, baby. All right. We are going to finish up Matthew 27 and 28 uh, at the, around Easter time. And we're going to finish a five-year trek through this wonderful gospel. And I, I mean, when we get to Philippians, y'all, it's just going to be like we fly through that thing. All right. So if you get to Matthew chapter 27, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? As we see how wickedness is subservient to God's plan. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, let's read the first 
10 verses together. It says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is, it that to, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that, pill, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price on him who, uh, of him on whom a price had been set by the sum of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. As we come back into Matthew, I think it's important for us to remember that Matthew has laid out his book in a very particular way. That he's laid out his book in a particular way so that those of us that weren't traveling with Jesus and those of us that weren't there as Matthew was there would be able to see some of the nuances, some of the stories within the story, to be able to, to take what the, the details that he gives us and to connect them into the scope of the, the big picture, the, the story of redemption. Now if you'll remember back, back all the way to Matthew chapter 12, we are told even then, that the leaders of Israel, the, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees were conspiring together on how they might ultimately undo Jesus, how they might cause Jesus' ministry to unravel. When he comes into Jerusalem for the Passover on that first day of Passion Week, they are, we are told that they begin to conspire with one another on how they might ultimately see him murdered. And over the course of time, if you'll remember, in chapter 21, 22, and 23, there's this smear campaign against Jesus to try to, to, to try to cause Jesus' popularity to be undone so that ultimately the crowd would turn on him and serve the desires of the leader of Israel. But they're unsuccessful. But by the time we get here to Matthew chapter 27, they have resolved that it has gone on long enough. And they conspire with one of his disciples, with, with Judas, to betray him. And Judas betrays Jesus, his friend, his teacher, his Lord. He betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, the cost of a common slave. And so when we, we come in, we're, we're, we're stepping right into the midst of Friday, the day of Jesus' crucifixion, the day in which Jesus will be nailed to the cross, the day after which Jesus has received a sentence of condemnation from the Sanhedrin of Jerusalem. But we take an aside. Matthew takes an aside. He, he brings us into a story that's going on within the story. And he's setting up his book so that we can zoom out from, or zoom in from the big picture to see some of these characters that are in play and to see what it is that they reveal about God and about God's plan and about Christ and Christ's identity. And so this morning, that's what I want us to look at. 
I want us to look at the characters in the story and I want us to see their responses and what that teaches us of Christ. I want us to, to look at this story within the story to see exactly what it is that, that Matthew has for us to see. The first uh, character and response that he draws our attention to is the wicked remorse of Judas. The wicked remorse of Judas. Now, you'd think that by now, Judas, having delivered Jesus over, having collected his, his ransom of 30 shekels of silver, you would think if you've watched enough movies that by this point, he's hanging out on a beach in Thailand somewhere, right? Like, like you think by this point, he's surfing, he's eating tacos, he's, he's living the, the high life, right? Because he's, he's coming to a windfall. He probably doesn't want to get caught up in the fray of everything that's coming on, going on. But here's Judas. Having collected 30 pieces of, of silver, and he hasn't spent a dime of it. He hasn't spent one penny of all that's going on. In fact, Judas has decided, having heard that Jesus has been condemned, having heard that Jesus is ultimately going to die, Judas has decided that he has made a horrible decision. Have you ever made a, a terrible decision that can't be unmade? Have you ever done something that couldn't be undone? Have you ever said something that couldn't be unsaid? Then you can identify with Judas here. Judas has realized that he has condemned a man that is innocent. He has condemned a man that has only loved him. He has condemned a man that has only served him and demonstrated to him incredible kindness over the course of his life and that he has done it for mere silver, metal, shiny metal, and he has handed him over to officials. And so he decides that he's going to go back and, and he's going to seek out his co-conspirators and he takes his 30 pieces of silver and he says, I want to give this back. I want to return it to you. We have, we have condemned an innocent man. And what do the priests of Israel do? They cover their eyes and they say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. That, that doesn't sound like our problem to me. That is, that they wanted plausible deniability. They wanted that money out of their hands as quickly as they could get it. They don't want word going around that they paid off. They paid off one of Jesus' disciples to betray him. They, they don't want that thing hanging over their head. They want to get do away with Jesus and they get on from Jesus as quickly as possible. And so like a politician, they close their eyes and they say, I just want plausible deniability. I don't want to know whatever you do with that money is on you. Judas takes the bag of silver and he heaves it into God's temple. The temple where these corrupt priests were ruling. The, the temple where these corrupt priests were conspiring together to eliminate Jesus from the earth. And so Matthew is wanting us to look at these, these characters and to draw some comparisons. The first comparison that I want us to see is between Judas and Jesus. Between Judas and Jesus. Think about it. Jesus was innocent but condemned, while Judas was guilty yet prosperous. Jesus was innocent but condemned, while Judas was guilty yet prosperous. I want you to think about what, all of the, what it means that Ju Judas himself declares Jesus is innocent. Now, there was nobody, there's never been a person that has ever lived on the face of the earth that had more to gain, that stood to benefit greater from a fraudulent Christ than Judas Iscariot. 
Judas had, had condemned him. Judas had turned him over to the authorities. And if Jesus is a charlatan, if, Je- if Jesus is a fraud, if Jesus is fake, then Judas is not a goat. Judas is not a worm. Judas is a hero. Judas is one that has been courageous enough and bold enough to stand up for virtues when the rubber meets the road. Judas would be the one that has went against relationships and against friendships for the sake of a greater good, for the sake of delivering the people of God from a false teacher, a heretic, a prophet that would lead them into hell. And yet here is Judas, the one that stood to profit the silver, The one that stood to profit the reputation in all of human history. The one that stood to stand out as one who is holy in Israel and a defender of the law is here. And he is declaring to his very co-conspirators, we have condemned an innocent man. The Christ is true. Jesus is authentic. Jesus is innocent. Not only did he stand the most to gain, but he had the clearest view, didn't he? Judas lived virtually 24 hours a day for three years with Jesus. Judas was there when the alleged miracles happened, when when people, thousands of people were fed with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. Judas was there in the boat when, when Jesus calmed the storm, and he was in the boat on another day when Jesus came walking on water and when Peter himself stood out on water like dry ground. Judas was there when all of the miraculous wonders heard, when when blind people are seeing and deaf people are hearing and lame people are walking. Judas was there and Judas was a witness. And not only was Judas a witness to Jesus' miraculous public ministry, but Judas was a witness to Jesus' private life. He was the treasurer, the manager of Jesus' funds, the manager of of the money that they took in so that they could live properly. He was there when when he saw Jesus when he was off the clock and around the campfire and and at dinner. He knows the sense of humor that Jesus has and he knows the, the language and the way that he talks about people behind the scenes. He knows about the motives in Jesus' heart. He knows about the attitude of Jesus' service. He was there. And what does he have to say for himself? What does he have to say about the testimony of Christ? He says, he is innocent. He is a pure man. He is a righteous man. He is a good man. He is innocent of all the charges that we have brought against him. He is innocent of the false allegations that you have made. He is innocent of the charge of blasphemy that condemns him even now. He is innocent of my betrayal. Jesus Christ is innocent. I want you to see the plan of God here. Some of you are skeptical. And and some of you, you you battle, even in your faith, you battle with doubt. How can I know that Christ is true? How can I know that Christ is supreme among the gods? How can I know that Christ is, is right and everyone else is wrong? Maybe you would expect Peter and Paul, John and James. Maybe you would expect them to say that Jesus is the Christ. Maybe you would expect them to say that Jesus is innocent and Jesus is true and Jesus is authentic. 
Maybe you would even expect that Jesus would say of himself, I am the Son of God. I am the way to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one will get to the Father except through me. Maybe you would expect Christ himself to say that. But what will you do with Judas? What will you do with Judas? What will you do from the, with the one who declares the innocence of Christ and the righteousness of Christ when he stood to gain from the wickedness and the fraudulence of Christ? What will you do with the one that handed him over as his betrayer but still looks to him and says, he is an innocent man? See, Christ's innocence is necessary for the sake of the gospel. If Christ is not innocent, he cannot be our substitute for sin. He cannot take our place as a guilty man. If he is a guilty man in and of himself, his cross is meaningless to us. If he in his own sin and his own wickedness deserves the cross and deserves the wrath of God. But here is Judas telling us, singing us a wonderful song, a song of redemption. I have betrayed innocent blood, innocent blood plunged beneath all your stains can be washed away. Innocent blood, righteous blood that can take away all of your wickedness and all of your sins. I have betrayed innocent blood, the blood that can set us free, the blood that is shed for you and me. I have betrayed innocent blood. I wonder if this morning you would place your faith in him. I wonder if this morning you might listen to the lips of a betrayer. Listen to the lips of Judas, a man who knew Jesus better than any of us know Jesus, a man who handed Jesus over and stood to gain from his fraudulence, who says, this man is innocent. This man is a worthy substitute. This man is a worthy sacrifice this morning. I wonder if the Spirit might open your eyes to see for the very first time and that today you might offer him, come to him, in repentance and faith and say, Jesus, wash me clean. Take my place. There's another comparison that we're supposed to make with Jesus here, though, or Judas here. You'll notice that, if you'll remember what happens right at the end of Matthew chapter 26. Right at the end of Matthew chapter 26, we have the betrayal of Peter, don't we? The, we call it the denial of Peter because we want to differentiate between Judas and Peter. But truthfully, it was a betrayal by Peter. Now think about what's happening in the life of the church. Now, Matthew's gospel doesn't come out instantaneously after Jesus' resurrection. It comes out some 30, 40 years later after, after Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he's telling his account of all that's happened so that his Jewish readers might be one to the gospel or his Jewish believers might be strengthened in the gospel. So by this point in church history, Peter is already a renowned preacher. He, he has witnessed the miraculous. He has preached the sermon on Pentecost where thousands came to faith. He was the foremost leader in all of the early church. And then there's Judas. There's Judas hanging from a tree. There's Judas having heaved his silver back into the temple saying, I have betrayed an innocent man. Both of them weep. It says that Peter weeps bitterly. It says that, that Judas goes and, he, and he, is, he is sorry for what he has done. He, re, he is regretful over what he has done. So what's the difference between Judas and Peter? 
why is it that Peter goes on to serve the Lord, to be used by the Lord, even though he cowered down in denial of Jesus before a mere servant girl? While, while Judas goes and he hangs from a tree in ultimate despair and is remembered throughout church history as a servant of the devil himself. What is the difference? The difference between Judas and Peter is the difference between remorse and repentance. The difference between Judas and Peter is the difference between remorse and repentance. Paul writes about this to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Listen to this, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. You hear what he's saying? This is the difference between Paul, I mean, this is the difference between Peter and Judas. The difference between Peter and Judas is that Judas is filled with worldly grief and worldly sorrow, while Peter is filled with, with grief and sorrow that brings him ultimately to repentance. So many people, so many people believe that the Christian life is about feeling guilty all of the time. That the Christian life is about messing up, blowing up, sinning against God, and then living the rest of your life as though you are feeling guilty. And so many people from my generation have abandoned the church of Christ because they say, I don't want to live feeling guilty all the time. I don't want to have somebody always trying to make me feel bad about who I am and about what I've done. But brothers and sisters, that is not the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is not to live in guilt. The goal of the Christian life is to live in freedom. It's to live in freedom. And the difference between guilt and freedom is remorse and repentance. You see, wicked remorse, like Judas's wicked remorse, looks within. It's self-absorbed. It's self-sufficient. It tries to make things right on its own. It tries to make an amends on its own in all the ways that it can figure it out. And so we see that in Judas's life as he goes back into the temple to all of his co-conspirators and he says, I have sinned. I have, I have, I have condemned an innocent man. And he throws in the silver. But what happens? It doesn't make it better. It doesn't fix it because all his grief did is it caused him to double down on himself and double down in his own wisdom and double down in his own strength and double down on his own righteousness. But Peter, Peter repents and goes to Christ. He goes to Christ. He tells Christ three times, I love you, I love you, I love you. I will feed your sheep. I will serve you faithfully, Christ. He Will you have mercy on me? See, repentance doesn't cause you to look within. It doesn't cause you to double down on your strength. It doesn't cause you to double down and to make yourself right. It doesn't cause you to try to be a good person, to undo all of the bad person that you were. No, 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 no. Repentance takes you to Christ and it throws yourself on the mercy of Christ and on the grace of Christ and on the sufficiency of Christ and on the, on the sacrifice of Christ. So that Jesus ultimately says, your sin has been removed from you. Go and sin no more. Your, your sin has been taken and credited to me. And you get all of my righteousness. You get all of my goodness. Everything that is wrong about you, let me have. Everything that is right about me here, you can have it. 
You see, Jesus didn't come to induce guilt. Jesus didn't come so that there would be a guilt-stricken, guilt-driven church. No, Jesus came to absorb our guilt. Jesus came to absorb our guilt and to absorb God's wrath owed to our guilt so that we don't live in despair like Judas. We don't dangle from ropes like Judas. No, we walk in freedom. We walk in miraculous power. We walk in spirit-wrought, God-given strength like Peter. Not because Peter is stronger than Judas. We are just as guilty of treachery and betrayal as Judas ever was. The only difference is is that we have found the grace of Jesus Christ. We have been set free, not by our innocence, but by His innocence. Are you remorseful over your sin? Or are you repentant? Are you living your life in guilt or are you living your life in freedom? Have you truly trusted in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice? Or are you still trying to make things right on your own power and with your own wisdom and in your own way? Oh, oh friend, come to Christ today. Come to Christ today. Give it all to Christ. Christian, you were not raised by Christ to walk in guilt. You were raised by Christ to walk in newness of life and power and in victory and in strength and in grace. Oh, walk in freedom this morning, Christian. Put a smile on your face that isn't fake. Put joy in your spirit that isn't contrived and walk in the freedom that is wrought by Christ. After Judas, Matthew brings our attention to the wicked resolve of the priests and elders. He brings our attention to the wicked resolve of the priests and elders. As we've talked, they've been plotting and conspiring for a while to get rid of Jesus, right? We we already know that. Uh, Back in chapter 21, as Jesus has his triumphal entry, they are astonished that he would allow everybody else to, to call him to call him the Son of God and that he would not rebuke them for for praising him and saying, Hosanna, 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 glory to God in the highest. And they are filled with a murderous rage that cannot be undone and nothing is going to stop them. Not buyer's remorse, buyer's regret by by Judas, not, not some new feigned idea. No, 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 they will not be stopped. They are resolved in their hypocrisy, and they are resolved in their hard-heartedness. First, I want you to see their hypocrisy. It says in verse 1 that they took counsel to put him to death. They took counsel to put him to death. You see, they had condemned Jesus in their own courts, right? The Sanhedrin was a Jewish establishment, but there's a problem. They have condemned Jesus. They have said Jesus should die. They have said that he is guilty of blasphemy, but Rome doesn't care about that. They are a subservient state conquered by Rome, living under the rule of Rome. And Rome would not allow their subservient states to carry out the death penalty without their okaying it. They didn't want the the people that they conquered to go and execute Roman sympathizers. And so they eliminated the death penalty from their authority. And so they have to have governors over all of these states, men like Pontius Pilate that can go and and sign death certificates. And their problem also is, is that 
Rome was not going to see Jewish blasphemy as being a, a sentence worthy of death. Rome could care less what the law of God says. Rome could care less what Jesus says about the Jewish God. Rome would prefer any man be converted to their way of life, be converted to their pagan gods. And so they, they, were, they could care less. And so they have condemned Jesus in the Sanhedrin, but they're a long way from seeing Jesus executed. They're a long way from seeing Jesus executed. What they have to do is they have to conspire together. They have to conspire together to trump up Jesus' charges and present them in a way that is going to cause Rome to see Jesus as being worthy of the death penalty. They were going to have to contrive it in such a way so that ultimately Rome would see Jesus as a threat to unity and to civil unrest. And so you remember when, when, he, when he's before Pilate, what does Pilate ask him? He says, are you king of the Jews? Are you king of the Jews? He doesn't say, are you guilty of blasphemy? He says, are you leading an insurrection? Are you trying to present yourself as being one that only Caesar can be? Are you trying to upend the political systems and the rule of Rome in your land? And all of it is dishonest, isn't it? All of it is dishonest. It is, a, it is a dishonest representation of who Jesus has presented himself to be and how Jesus has preached and taught in all of the crowds. In other words, it's the essence of hypocrisy. It's the essence of hypocrisy. That they are making it as though Jesus said what he really didn't say and intended what he really didn't intend, and they are presenting him to ultimately be executed all in the name of God, all in the name of, of honoring the law of God and, and upholding the people of God. They are invoking God's name to justify the wickedness that they want to do. Not only that, but notice what they say to, G to Judas. Judas comes in, he wants to give him the, he wants to give him the silver, and what do they say to him? It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Now, think about this. The blood money came from the treasury, okay? The blood money came from the treasury. But suddenly what they are saying to Judas is, well, we can't bring that money into the temple. We can't do that. That's blood. That, that's wicked money. That money is unclean. That money has no place among the people of God. That, that money has no place here in the temple of God. We can't take corrupt money, money that we were so corrupt that we paid to you. We couldn't possibly violate the law. Now, never mind. They have violated the law in that they have conspired to murder. They have violated the law in that they have uh, bore false witness and promoted false witness. They have violated the law in that they have used the temple for personal and selfish gain and advancement. But here, when it comes to blood money, my goodness, let us draw a line in the sand because we are not going to violate law in that way. It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. They were particular about every aspect of the law except the parts of the law that they broke. They were particular about every aspect of the law except the parts of the law that they broke. They are revealing what's inside of them regardless of who they present on the outside. They are revealing the corruption of their hearts through ultimately the corruption and the hypocrisy of their actions. They are justifying their sin while at the very same time they are condemning the sin of all of those that are around them. And yet chained in their midst, right there with them, is perfect purity, perfect innocence, 
perfect righteousness. He taught because he believed. He served because he loved. He lived out the very things that he taught. He was the one here to bear the judgment of the condemned. You know, we compare a lot more favorably to the Pharisees than we do to Jesus, don't we? How often is it that we take the law of God and we are particular about every part of the law of God except the parts that pertain to us? Except the parts that condemn our sinfulness? How how famous is the church today for condemning homosexuality while we live in sexual immorality ourselves? We are easily, we find it easy to condemn secularism while we live ourselves in materialism. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, we need the purity of Christ. We need the purity of Christ because our hearts are impure, they're corrupt, they're turning us against and they make us into hypocrites. We need the purity of Christ to transform us from the in to the out so that our lives are in alignment with what God would have for us to be. We don't just see them resolved in their hypocrisy. We see them resolved in their hard-heartedness. We see them resolved in their hard-heartedness. Now, remember, these are the shepherds of Israel, right? Ezekiel 34 talks a lot about Like throughout the, throughout the Old Testament, we read that the priests are to be the shepherds of Israel. They are to be the ones who, spiritually speaking, are guiding Israel toward God, guiding Israel toward a closer relationship with the Lord. And here is one of their sheep, Judas. And Judas has come and he has confessed his sin to them, that he has committed a horrific atrocity. And he has come and he has confessed it and told them and told them all the things. And what do they say? Not our problem. It's not our problem. In other words, they close their hearts to Judas. They don't call Judas to repentance. They don't call Judas to a closer relationship with the Lord. They don't call Judas to go and to make a, a sin offering. No, instead, they see Judas as a scapegoat. They see Judas as an opportunity, somebody they can pin the murder of Jesus on so that ultimately their hands are clean and all of their problems are eliminated. Not only do we see that, but we see that they are ultimately unwilling to take responsibility for Jesus themselves, right? In fact, the, the NIV even says it explicitly. You, this is your responsibility. This is your problem from the chief priest talking to Judas. That is, they don't want to take responsibility for what Christ, what is happening to Christ. They want all of that to rest on Judas's shoulders. And I want you to think about that picture. They were refusing responsibility for Jesus' blood, but Jesus was in the process of assuming responsibility for their sin with his blood. The priests were guiding them toward guilt and death, but Jesus, the chief shepherd, had come to offer them forgiveness and life. They were pinning their problems on a scapegoat, but Jesus was taking their problems upon himself as the lamb to be slain. As Jesus stood there, chained up in the midst of the hard-hearted hypocrites, he was saying even to them, even to his executioners, come to me. Come to me and I will assume responsibility for your guilt. Come to me and I will assume responsibility for your sin. Come to me and I will take your filth upon myself. Come to me and I will set you free from the oppression of the law. Come to me and I will make you new. See, Christ, he came because we couldn't take responsibility for our sins and live. 
So Christ came and he assumed responsibility for us. He assumed the responsibility for our sin. And the reason that we can repent, the reason that we can turn back from our sin is that now with Christ bearing the weight of our sin, with Christ assuming the responsibility of our sin, with Christ absorbing the wrath owed to our sin, now we can look honestly at our sin and we can deal with our sin and we can offer our sin up to the Lord and we can turn away from it. We can live now in freedom because Christ has taken the responsibility. We can live without guilt because Christ has assumed the guilt. We can live in freedom because Christ has come and he has put to death everything in us that was guilty. So this morning, would you have the guts? Would you have the guts to look your sin in the eye? Would you have the guts to deal honestly with the sin in your life, whatever that sin is? Would you, would you have the guts to live, look honestly at those secrets that you're keeping? Would you have the guts to look honestly at the, at the things in your life that you've been justifying and excusing and doing away with? Would you look honestly at the corruption of your heart and the attitude and the motivations that you find there? Would you look honestly within and would you offer them to Christ? Would you offer them to Christ and let Christ assume responsibility so that you may now walk in freedom and obedience? But we haven't gotten to the best part yet. We haven't gotten to the best part yet. We haven't even gotten to the part of God's plan. We haven't even gotten to the, to the, to the threads of providence that are weaving together in the background of this whole story. See, all of this is working together for the wonderful redemption of God. You know, there, there's some strange verses in verse 9 and 10, aren't they? There's some strange verses. I doubt, I doubt there's many of us here that know exactly what, what is meant here. He quotes Jeremiah, says, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver. So he's quoting the prophets when he says this. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, this is tricky. If you read all of the book of Jeremiah, you would never find this passage. How about that? That's pretty tricky, huh? So is this a misquote by Matthew? No. You would find parts of this in Jeremiah. And you would find parts of this in Zechariah chapter 11. Jeremiah 19, Zechariah 11. But, but Matthew brings them together. He brings these two themes, these two ideas, these two motifs together to present one truth. One truth. He credits the, the more popular, the, the better known of the prophets in Jeremiah. But he brings these things together to say one truth. You think, you think the betrayal of Jesus was to undo, Judas was to undo Jesus? You, you think that the, that the silver that betrayed him and the silver that was thrown and the silver that bought the potter's field, you think all of that was an accident? You think God's just responding and reacting and trying to figure out how all of this fits together and trying to make bad things and okay? You, you think God is caught off guard? You think he didn't see Judas coming? You think he didn't see the priest coming? You think he didn't see the cross coming? You think that undoes who Christ has claimed to be? You think that undoes who Christ is as the Messiah? No, 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 no. 
No, that is the proof because for hundreds of years he has said that a potter's field will be bought. For hundreds of years he has said silver will be a part of the purchase. For hundreds of years he has said that the Messiah who is coming is the servant who would be slain. That Matthew is using the prophets to show that none of this wickedness is by accident. These are not accidents. They are fulfillments. So track with me here. Only God, only God can make a formula like this work. See, there's a, there's a formula bubbling beneath the surface here. A formula that is bubbling beneath the surface of the wickedness of Judas and the wickedness of the priest that is ultimately going to crescendo in great hope, crescendo in the worship of the church, crescendo in the redemption of the world. You see, only God can take wickedness plus wickedness and make it equal wonderful. Stay with me here. Only God, only God, only the sovereign God who speaks the world into existence by demanding and commanding nothingness can take what is wicked, add in what is wicked, and lead it to what is wonderful. When Judas sells out, it appears that God isn't there. When the priests conspire against Jesus, it appears that God isn't there. But God never left. God was in the middle of it all. He was making it all wonderful. God was directing it all. Look at the very last phrase of verse 10. What does it say? As the Lord directed me. As the Lord directing me. You see, God was directing their wickedness toward his wonderful redemption. God transforms in this world what is wicked into what is wonderful for the sake and the glory of his kingdom. Jesus was sold, slandered, and stabbed, yet he was perfectly within the will of God. He was hated, harmed, and hungry, and he was perfectly within the will of God. He was beaten down, spat upon, and hung out to dry, perfectly within the will of God. Jesus suffered from the world's wickedness, but the Father, the Father, the the overarching providence of the Father was going to take all of this wickedness and all of this corruption, and he was going to form it together into something wonderful, that Jesus would be betrayed into the hands of his conspirators. He would be offered up according to false charges. He would be beaten down at the post and hammered to a tree, a cursed tree upon which he would die. But oh, brothers and sisters, on the night of his crucifixion, on Friday night, we have to remember that the resurrection was coming. His redemption was coming. Jesus would be raised from the dead and all of his church would be raised with him so that that which is wicked could not hold him down and that which was destructive could not destroy him no oh brothers and sisters christ christ has made what is wicked and what is destructive into that which is wonderful our redemption and our salvation judas judas thought jesus died because of his plan The priests, they thought that Jesus died because of their ingenuity. But Christ died according to the plans of God by laying down his own life in the providence of the Lord so that you and I, we might be redeemed. So that in our life, as we live as believers, wickedness might be turned into that which is wonderful. Oh, you've done great wickedness, haven't you? You've had great wickedness. There is heinousness in your heart and in your life. 
You've done things that you think you can't come back from. You've made decisions that you think you can't undo. You think that you are now condemned to live in despair like that of Judas and ultimately to dangle from a rope in a tree. But brothers and sisters, if you will deal honestly with your sin, if you will come to the innocent Christ and let him assume responsibility for you, he will take all of that away and let you walk in the freedom of the resurrection. Some of you have had wickedness done to you. You've had wickedness done and betrayed by people that you love and people that meant the world to you and people that you would have never thought could have happened. You face sickness that isn't fair and you face atrocities that you couldn't see coming and you don't know how in the world it can fit together. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you see the hope of redemption that God can take that which is wicked, add in that which is wicked and make it into that which is wonderful and that which is worship provoking. Oh, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, God takes that which is wicked. He adds what is wicked and he makes it wonderful. This morning, will you come to Christ? This morning, will you bring what you have to Christ? Will you bring your hopelessness and despair to Christ? Will you bring your sin to Christ? Will you bring your heart and offer it to Christ? Will you bring your despair and offer it to Christ? Will you bring your anxiety and offer it to Christ? And watch, watch as Christ makes it wonderful. Let's pray.